I remember when Bill O'Reilly used to have this show on Fox News. He had that segment, or maybe it was the motto of the whole show. I don't know. I didn't watch it that often. But the no spin zone, he talked about there being the zone of no spin, right? And the idea is we're not going to give you talking points. We're not going to try to spin this for you in favor of one side or the other. We're just going to tell you like it is, right? Now, to the extent that O'Reilly was successfully able to provide such a zone, uh, I will leave for you to judge. But we're going to pursue a similar goal tonight. There's not going to be uh, any talking points on the program this evening. In fact, there's going to be a high degree of, of nuance and uh, provocative conversation, provocative takes that probably challenge one of your preconceived notions. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. We're streaming at and your iHeartRadio app. You can hear us 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can do a search for previous shows right there in the iHeartRadio app. Just search for Closing Argument, and our channel will pop up there for you. We've got a lot of cool recent interviews and clips, and you can go back and listen to our coverage of the of the primary election night. We had Kip and Max in here, and it was a good time. In fact, I, I assume you got my email, Brad, that you and Max are going to be filling in on the 4th. Are we? Yes, <laughs> apparently he hasn't checked I, his email. I, I have not seen that email, but <laughs> okay. okay, we are. Do we have a producer? <laughs> well, that, I leave that to your capable ads as uh, to whether or not we have a Well, producer. we don't have a producer yet. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the loose plan as of now. So you'll see Max again here shortly on the program uh, right after Labor Day. I, assuming he's cool with that. I, I assume, you know, all these things are coming together. At any rate, so... 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Later this evening, we're going to get into, there was another shooting down in Florida, this one at a video game tournament. I guess they were playing Madden 2019, and a shooting broke out. And so this presents opportunity to go in all kinds of different directions from you know, the effect that video games have on our culture, whether or not video games are linked to violence and something needs to be done in that regard. We get into the whole gun control debate. And there's this interesting correlation or juxtaposition is probably the better word to use between this type of situation, a shooting like this, and the killing of Molly Tibbetts that resulted in a very similar rhetoric uh, just with different partisan identities claiming each side. We'll get into that later in the program. And speaking of Molly Tibbetts, her father came out and had some comments in uh, the aftermath of the, the you know, frankly, politicization of his daughter's murder, and those comments were inconvenient, inconvenient for those who have been trying to leverage uh, this this tragic uh, incident for political effect. We'll get into that later in the program as well. Next hour, I want to explore in bipartisan fashion from both the Republicans and the Democrats how we're basically all collectivists now, and this is something that you know I regard as the the top political and cultural problem in our society is that there there is no mainstream advocacy for individualism in our public discourse anymore it's all collectivism and the only difference is who it benefits and who it victimizes 
And so we'll get into that in the 10 o'clock hour. Donald Trump's woes continue uh, in the aftermath of the Michael Cohen guilty plea. And there's other developments that occurred over the weekend that are complicating things, complicating the legal situation for President Donald Trump. We'll get into that. The Catholic Church is having a heck of a time right now. Uh, Pope Francis under fire uh, involving allegations of a cover-up of sexual abuse within the church. And we may get into that later this evening. But I want to start tonight with the big news over the weekend, and that is the passing of Senator John McCain. And I want to I want to spend a little bit of time on this tonight, not, not talking about McCain as such, but talking about the, how the person of John McCain and the political career of John McCain acted as a touch point or a touchstone or a, a mechanism through which we could view the, the dynamic, the ideological dynamic and political dynamic within the Republican Party and within national politics more broadly, particularly this, this kind of rivalry that emerged between McCain and Trump over the past two, three years that has become very instructive of where the divisions are within the Republican Party right now. And, you know, then I'm going to come along and point out that, to me, the meaningful division between or, or within the Republican Party crosses that whole spectrum. Like, they, there's there's one divide between McCain and Trump that's kind of, you could broadly characterize as establishment versus anti-establishment. The divide I'm more interested in is between libertarian, small l, for liberty libertarian, and authoritarian. And both these guys, McCain and Trump, in their own ways, lean much more authoritarian than for my taste. And we'll get into all of that uh, as we unpack the, the passing of Senator John McCain. But I want to start off with his farewell statement. I just want to read this because I thought it was, it was really good. I mean, when you, when you consider that... A, a guy is facing his mortality, he's facing eternity, and he's thinking about what his last public words are going to be uh, when he's been engaged in a career of public service for 60 years. This ain't a bad statement, in my opinion. He wrote, my fellow Americans, whom I have gratefully served for 60 years, and especially my fellow Arizonians, thank you for the privilege of serving you and for the rewarding life that service in uniform and in public office has allowed me to lead. I've tried to serve our country honorably. I've made mistakes, but I hope my love for America will be weighed favorably against them. I have often observed that I'm the luckiest person on earth. I feel that way even now as I prepare for the end of my life. I loved my life, all of it. I've had experiences, adventures, friendships enough for 10 satisfying lives, and I am so thankful. Like most people, I have regrets, but I would not trade a day of my life in good or bad times for the best day of anybody else's. I owe the satisfaction to the love of my family. One man has never had a more loving wife or children he was prouder of than I am of mine. And I owe it to America to be connected with America's causes, liberty, equal justice, respect for the dignity of all people, bringing happiness more sublime that life's fleeting than life's fleeting pleasures. Our identities and sense of worth are not circumscribed, but are enlarged by serving good causes bigger than ourselves. 
Fellow Americans, that association has meant more to me than any other. I lived and died a proud American. We are citizens of the world's greatest republic, a nation of ideals, not blood and soil. You know, to me, that's, that's the line of this whole statement. If I could pick one out and just highlight it, if, if I was going to chisel something into Senator John McCain's gravestone, it would be that line. We're a nation of ideals, not blood and soil. That is a meaningful statement. We're a nation of, that has a creed. We're not based upon a race. We're not based upon a place. We're based upon ideas. He continued, we are blessed and a blessing to humanity when we uphold and advance those ideals at home and in the world. We have helped liberate more people from tyranny and poverty than ever before in history. We have acquired great wealth and power in the progress. We weaken our greatness when we confuse our patriotism with rivalries that have sown resentment and hatred and violence in all the corners of the globe. We weaken it when we hide behind walls rather than tear them down. When we doubt the power of our ideals rather than trust them to be the great force for change they have always been. We are 325 million opinionated, vociferous individuals. We argue and compete and sometimes even vilify each other in our raucous public debates. But we have always had so much more in common with each other than in disagreement. If only we remember that and give each other the benefit of the presumption that we all love our country, we'll get through these challenging times. We will come through them stronger than before. We always do. Ten years ago, I had the privilege to concede defeat in the election for president. I want to end my farewell to you with heartfelt faith in, Amer in Americans that I felt so powerfully that evening. I feel it powerfully still. Do not despair of our present difficulties. We believe always in the promise and greatness of America because nothing is inevitable here. Americans never quit. We never surrender. We never hide from history. We make history. Farewell, fellow Americans. God bless you and God bless America. That was the farewell statement authored by Senator John McCain before his passing this weekend. And look, I could pick nits in terms of you know, some of the sentiments that are offered here, but I'm not going to because there's no point. There's no, there's no point in doing that at this, at this point. The, the takeaway for me, aside from you know, that, that one line that I think is just absolutely key, we're a nation of ideals, not blood and soil. We're a nation that has a creed that's based upon beliefs, ideas, not a race or a place. And I think that's a, a fundamental founding idea that we all ought to be able to get behind. And it's to the degree that we can't, it's a huge problem. Because that's the one unifying concept. That is American exceptionalism. That statement, a nation of ideals, not blood and soil, that's what American exceptionalism is. That's it. That's the whole thing. And so if we can't agree on that, then America is no more exceptional than any other country on earth. And Obama had it right when he talked about French exceptionalism and British exceptionalism. If American exceptionalism means anything at all, it means that we're a nation that is founded upon the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that should not and cannot and will not be violated so long as we draw breath. And that's the idea. John McCain, in his passing, putting forward and upholding that idea, that is, that is something that forgives much in my mind. When I go back and I think about the, the John McCain who ran for president in 2008 against Barack Obama, John McCain and Donald Trump are similar relative to me in this one respect, which is that 
I was not big fans of either of them. Ideologically, when you take a look at like policy and positions and ideological philosophical foundations, neither one of these men are people who I find myself in strong agreement with. But I was willing to support John McCain. That's the, that was the difference for me. I was willing to support him in spite of my ideological difference with him, ideological differences with him, and my policy differences with him because of his character, because he conducted himself honorably. He he set a higher standard, and there there's an example of this that's highlighted that was highlighted over the Star Tribune over the weekend. Actually, it was in the Washington Post. The Star Tribune reprinted it, and you guys remember this moment. This was the moment from 2008. It was both the most memorable moment from John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign and a glimpse into the future of the Republican Party and America's angry and divisive modern-day politics, played and replayed constantly since the senator's death on Saturday at age 81. The moment seems to presage the rise of the birther movement, the era of alternative facts, and the presidency of Donald Trump less than a decade later, uh, that according to the Star Tribune, and this is the moment in question. i got to ask you a question. I do not... Uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No? Man. No? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma he's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Now, the media has been playing that over the weekend and today and emphasizing the lady and emphasizing what she said. What's noteworthy in that clip, along with what she said, is not only McCain's response, but the response of the audience. You can hear people laughing at her as she says it. And then they applaud McCain when he corrects her and says, no, this is, this is a guy who is decent and who I have fundamental disagreements with. Now, I will say this. I don't think you have to go as far like in order to conduct yourself honorably. You know, there's kind of a false dichotomy that's being presented here between the way John McCain conducted himself and the way Donald Trump has conducted himself. Whereas in order to be nice, you have to say in order to be honorable and decent and conduct yourself in a civil matter, you have to say that your opponents are decent, good, nice people. I don't think you have to do that. I don't think it was right for John McCain to say Barack Obama is a decent person when Barack Obama was talking about taking away my liberties and driving my kids into debt that their kids will have to pay off decades from now. That's not a nice, decent thing to do to your fellow Americans, to your fellow human beings. That said, we ought, we, there's so much when we're looking at the left and we're looking at how to combat the left, there's so much that we can go after in terms of morality and policy and the value of liberty and the the superiority of the culture of gratitude over the culture of grievance and the culture of consent, the politics of consent over the politics of conquering. There's so much meat on those bones that we can have a field day with in our advocacy and in our campaigns that to lend any credence to the idea that somebody's religion matters or their ethnicity matters or to 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 in to affirm or even let pass a comment like the one this gal made in 2008 is not something that should be acceptable within the Republican Party. And the difference between then and now is that now, now it kind of is. 
Now we live in a different era. We'll get to it when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Reflecting upon the passing of Senator John McCain over the weekend and using it as a jump-off point to consider the divide within the Republican Party and within conservative social circles generally that is broadly represented by John McCain on the one hand and Donald Trump on the other. Now, you know, I, I think the juxtaposition of those two personalities is leaves a lot out of the discussion because as much as these two guys didn't get along personally and as different as the positions they may have had on particular points of policy, both domestically and on foreign policy, they were very similar in one important regard. And that was an embrace of collectivism and an embrace of authoritarianism. They wanted to use it for different means but they were both big fans of government, both big fans of the state and what the state can do if it's only controlled by the right hands. If only the right bearer holds the ring, then we can do something great for you know Middle Earth, so to speak. And uh, that that's just a, that's perspective that I disagree with, and found myself in disagreement with John McCain when he was running in two thousand eight. Found myself in disagreement with Donald Trump when he's running in 2016. But the difference between the two relative to me personally was that I was willing to support John McCain and I was not willing to support Donald Trump. And the key difference between the two, the defining aspect between the two was candor. It was, it was demeanor. It was the way they conducted themselves and the way that they represented me and represented the Republican Party to the rest of the nation. And so we're ta- we're talking about that along with kind of the 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 broader uh, transition that has taken place within the Republican Party over the past two three years in the Trump era six five one nine eight nine five eight five five closing argument my name is Walter Hudson Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM let's talk to Dan in Hopkins welcome to the program hey Walter hey great show as usual hey you know the President Trump, obviously, we all know his enormous ego, and that's really a problem. And certainly John McCain as well, enormous ego, mm-hmm. and uh, he let his ego get in the way. And I'm not saying what he said wouldn't have been very extremely hurtful, what the president said about him. But what was really sad for me, throughout all the years that John McCain served, he never had a founder's view of America. Right. He had a part of that, or a a semblance of that at times, mm-hmm. but I hold him to some degree responsible for the deep state. I owe I I, I hold him somewhat responsible. Certainly, McCain-Feingold is a disaster. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, a moderate. He's the dar was the darling also of the leftist media. He was the guy that was going to show there's somehow something noble about about doing things and, and capitulating to the left and to work with the other side. There's like some virtue that we're yeah. something down no matter how horrible it is because right. we're working with the other side. Yeah, he, he was proceeding from this false and really self-defeating premise that cooperation is a primary value, that that right. there's that there's something 
something good inevitably comes out of, quote, doing things together, unquote. And this is something, it's a, it's a sentiment that is always appealed to by the left because they know, this is the one point on which they actually have logic. They know logically that when freedom compromises with authority, authority always wins. And so, you know, the more the more bipartisan and the more you know, across the aisle dealings you can get with people who are interested in taking your freedom away, the more excited they're going to be. Yeah. All right, Walter. All right, appreciate Thanks, the call. Man. Appreciate the call. All right, so, you know, the the differences between these two guys fostered a a rivalry and again, you know, we're comparing John McCain to Donald Trump. Fostered a rivalry that has become the stuff of legend. <laughs> And it's it's metastasized in the past couple of days with some some examples that have been reported and cited of Trump perhaps, and I and I do say perhaps here, being a little vindictive in the immediate aftermath of John McCain's death. Which, if that's what he's doing, if that's what's if these stories are to be taken at face value, wow! Like I I don't understand how you not set us like what kind of person you have to be to not set aside whatever squabbles you had with somebody who died of brain caster cancer literally yesterday you know like i seems to me that's pretty easy to set your differences aside and just be decent and say decent things and do the things that you're supposed to do when somebody in that position passes i'm surprised trump hasn't tweeted something so far as to say as you might know john mccain and i had our differences and the biggest one is that I actually won. I'm just waiting for him to say something like that. <laughs> something along those lines. Well, I mean, because there's precedent for it, right? Like when he talked about how real heroes don't get caught. I like the heroes who don't get caught in reference to McCain uh, spending time as a POW. In, I mean, that was, look, I don't care where you land on Trump. That was a horrific, vile thing to say. You, And if anybody else had said it, their career would be over, Right. I mean, I don't understand how veterans gave that a pass, but whatever they did, I, it is what it is. Uh, but because the, he paid them off like the farmers, that type of that's the type of thing that put me in a camp where I could not support the guy. Like to me, that that's like if if you're if you if you had somebody, it's it's difficult to come up with a with an analogy. But if you have somebody like an employee or you know a member of your family who goes out there and speaks on your behalf and says thing vile things, it's a reflection upon you. And that's how I felt about it. This guy's a reflection upon me going out there and saying things like this, and, and I don't want to be a part of that. And that's why I wasn't able to support him in 2016 and why I was able to support McCain, even though I disagree with both of them equally on policy and ideology. You know, the Venn diagram that where of crossover between where John McCain and Donald Trump agreed is slim enough. You draw a third circle that represents my views, and pretty much the only thing all three of us would agree on is that America's great. That's it. We wouldn't agree as to why, but all three of us would agree that it is in fact great. And you know, but but nonetheless, I was willing to support Ob McCain over Obama. I was not willing to support Trump just because of this aspect of his personality, the, the kind of guy who, as reported here at the New York Post, put the kibosh on a White House statement that praised John McCain as a hero and instead decided to issue a tweet that only mentioned the late senator's family. An official West Wing statement that commended the Vietnam War hero for his service to the nation was drafted by White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders 
and Chief of Staff John Kelly before McCain's death on Saturday, according to the Washington Post. But Trump nixed the idea, insisting that he'd like to issue a tweet instead. And then, of course, there's the whole controversy over the lowering of the flag and the raising of it back up at the White House, which apparently, apparently that, according to the flag code, that was done exactly the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah, you're supposed to, when you lower the flag to half half staff, you're supposed to raise it all the way to the top, and then you're supposed to bring it back down to half. Well, but th- this is specifically in regards to how long it's supposed to be at half staff at, in the aftermath of a member of Congress dying, which apparently, according to many people posting on social media today, is the day of death and the day after, which would have been Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, that would make sense. And so for them to raise it back up to full staff today caused this big outrage, which apparently it's, it's weird because it's hard to tell whether or not this was something that was done out of sync with the way things have been done in the past, but apparently within sync of the flag code as written. I don't know, but well, it's because the flag gets put at half staff too often nowadays. Right. And that's, that's another point that people have been making that I absolutely agree with. I mean, it's, it should be something that's rare and meaningful rather than something that, you know, is happening every other week because there's a tragedy somewhere. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atz Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Senator John McCain passed over the weekend, which has prompted us to take a look at how the feud between McCain and President Donald Trump kind of acted as a measuring point or a demarcation point from which we could uh, discern one of the one of the big breaks, one of the big divides within the Republican Party and within conservatism in the year 2018. Closing argument. My name's Walter Outson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute to the show. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the program. Let's talk to Sue in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, you know, I know a guy who was a war veteran, and he fought very bravely. He volunteered for a very dangerous duty, mm-hmm. and he, he spent the rest of his life pretty much in public service. But I don't feel like I have to go say nice things about Adolf Hitler just because he's dead. You know, he didn't do right after that. And I'm not saying, I'm not comparing John McCain to Adolf Hitler, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I think when he voted against the, voted against the vote to put... Um, Repeal Obamacare. Yeah, and he he stabbed the American public in the back. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have to have Obamacare, but I just know what disaster it's going to cause on our medical system. But but here's the thing, Sue. Like I I I could agree with you on where McCain sat on policy, and no doubt if we went down the the bullet point list or the laundry list, you and I would be in strong agreement on the positions that John McCain has taken over the years. That said. Even if this was a Democrat senator, like you go back to Ted Kennedy passing away, you know, even if this was somebody who you and I are totally in disagreement with and Donald Trump is totally in disagreement with and on the other side of the political spectrum, you still, when somebody passes away, you you shut your mouth. 
you, yeah, I'm not saying sing his praises. I'm not saying go around talking about what a wonderful person he was, but you go through the motions. You, you say the, the honorable things that one says when a person in a certain position and prominence passes away and you don't become the story. I mean, isn't, is that too much to ask? No, you're right. You know, I just, I just, I don't even want to listen to, you know, I've had my radio off most of the day, but, yeah. you know, I'm addicted to your show, so. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but I didn't hear Trump. I didn't. Maybe you can tell me what Trump said. He sent a tweet offering consensus yeah. to the family. No, look, he, he has the... Family was, and he, he was vindictive. He right. wants the president at his funeral, you know. They made a big deal out of it, you know. And I think that flag thing, what does Donald Trump know about the rules for, you know, how... Well, that was... that. The more I read about that, the more that looks like a conscientious decision. Because apparently right. the tradition has been, even though... According to the flag code, you only have the flag at half-staff for the day of the death and the day after. Apparently, the tradition has been when a senator passes to have the flag at half-staff until they are uh, interned. And so to to put it back up re- as soon as statutorily possible seems like a conscientious and perhaps petty and vindictive decision. But who knows? I mean, that's imposing intent upon the action. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Appreciate the call as always, Sue. Let's talk to Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Hey. Um, yeah, um, okay, Trump Trump was a war hero. I know the guy was tortured mercilessly, and I commend him for his service. Talking about McCain. Yeah. Okay. But what did I say? Trump. Oh, I'm at oh, yeah, McCain. Yeah. No, um... Sorry, I've had a beer. It's all right. Um, <laughs> we expected no, it at but, 9 o'clock. But he kind of reduced himself when he took the took the stance to not back the Republican Party when he had the chance, when they all ran on that, sure. to repeal the Obamacare. And it was, he was just like a little kid mad, you know, at the playground. No, but I hear what you're I, saying. The, the, it kind of reduced him in my mind. It kind of reduced him. Yeah, I mean, look, you know? this the the one argument I will grant that, that that I've seen made today that I will grant total legitimacy is that being a veteran, even being a veteran of McCain's stature and uh, history of having gone through an unimaginable experience in the Hanoi Hilton and having endured torture and having made the choice to stay behind with his men when he was off the, the opportunity to leave and all of that, all of that does not lend moral authority to a single policy position. Like I don't have to agree with anything John McCain wants to do under the law or in law just because of those credentials. What I do think I owe him though is the respect due those particular actions and to and to exactly. that that as I disagree with him, I do so in an honorable fashion and an honorable way because of who he is and what he's done on my behalf. Mm-hmm. I think that's yep, fair. I agree. All right, I appreciate the call, Chris. I, I want to get into we had this shooting take place and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface before we go to break. But there was a shooting that took place over the weekend in Florida from Reuters, a video game or video gamer killed two people and wounded several others on Sunday when he opened fire with a handgun at a tournament that was being streamed online from a restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida, police said. Jacksonville Sheriff Mike Williams named the shooter as David Ketz, 24, of Baltimore, 
and said he was in town for the competition. He declined to comment on what led to the third major mass shooting to hit Florida in the last two years. Williams said Kurtz killed himself or Katz killed himself after the shooting and that his body was found along with those of his two victims. The sheriff's office said 11 people were wounded by gunfire and at least two others were injured while fleeing the scene. Dozens of ambulances and police cars flooded into the Jacksonville Landing, a waterfront dining, entertainment, and shopping site in the city's downtown after several shots rang out on a sunny Sunday afternoon. The shooting took place during a regional qualifier for the Madden 19 online game tournament at the GLHF Game Bar inside a Chicago pizza restaurant, according to the venue's website. The bar was live-streaming the football video game competition when the gunfire started. Uh, we didn't see him, uh, two hands on the gun, walking back. That's people talking about seeing him with, with the gun later on here. I can't find the exact moment, but they, there's an indication. There's an indication that this may have been motivated by him losing. They say something to the effect of he was eliminated from the tournament. And then a couple of minutes later, he came back in shooting and assuming that then, and we don't know this, but assuming that the motive for the shooting was, I just lost a video game competition, or I just got kicked out of a regional qualifier, or whatever the circumstances were, therefore I need to start killing people. The question that that raises is, how have we arrived at this point? You know, every single time we have one of these shootings, these mass shootings, school shootings, church shootings, wherever they find themselves happening, you get the, all this rhetoric focused on the gun, right? You know, should, do we need to have, do we need to change the way that people buy guns or uh, the the background check process or whatever the case may be? When the, in actuality, it seems very clear looking at the history of these incidents and how they never used to happen before and when they started and how they've increased over time, that something significant other than access to guns has taken place in the culture. What is that? We'll consider when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We started getting into this story out of Florida over the weekend on Sunday. There was another shooting. Uh, this one took place at a video game competition. There was a Madden 19 online football competition of some sort i don't know what the stakes were i don't know how these things work i don't understand how that's even a thing that happens but apparently it did it was happening in florida and the key phrase out of this writer story that i want to focus on is that local media said the shooter had been competing in the tournament and lost then apparently targeted other players before killing himself now at this point it's entirely speculative because there's been no official statement regarding what the motive behind the shooting was it's entirely speculative to assume that the motivation for the shooting was I lost the tournament and I'm really, really angry and so now I'm going to kill people. But f since we don't have a better explanation right now, for the sake of argument, because I find it plausible, I find it in this day and age, I find it highly plausible that that could happen. 
that somebody upset because they lost a video game decided they were going to go kill people. I want to consider the question of how do we get to that point? How do individuals get to that point where that's how they respond, where they've got that much vested in the outcome of a game in a digital arena that they they turn to murder, literally to murder as their response. And, you know, again, whether or not that's what happened in this case, we know that there there have been other shootings basically every shooting that has taken place, mass shooting, has been informed to one degree or another by this sense of grievance, this sense of I'm gonna show them, this sense of I've been put out. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna get back at everyone by taking up arms and doing harm against my fellow human beings. And I think that, you know, there's there's a a politically motivated effort to try to blame this on guns and the availability of guns. And that's, of course, patently absurd. We're not going to get into that, you know, tonight. There's but we've talked about it uh, ad nauseum in the past and we'll certainly talk about it in the future at some point. But suffice it to say, the accessibility of guns has been more or less a constant in the United States of America since its founding. And yet these types of incidents were not taking place in the past. So what's the difference between then and now? What's the difference between, say, oh, I don't know, 1955 and 2018, where you see this type of incident occurring? Yeah, especially since the technology of weapons hasn't changed really since then. Right. The M16 has been available that long. And so, you know, the answer, broadly speaking, that I would present or submit for your consideration is that the difference between then and now is values or the lack thereof. You know, the problem isn't so much the video games or a particular form of entertainment. It's not the availability of guns or the ability to get your hands on a weapon that could do harm to somebody if misused. It's a lack of character. And lack of character isn't something that just happens. It's something that's facilitated. It's something that has been cultivated in our culture by a widespread lack of meaning because I really think that, you know, when a kid when a kid makes the decision, and I don't know how, I guess he was 24 years old, so I shouldn't call him a kid. A man, a grown man, decides that he's going to engage in murder because he lost a video game. What that tells me about him, what I can say with a high degree of certainty, is that there wasn't a whole lot of meaning in his life. There wasn't much of substance. There wasn't deep roots, deep philosophical, deep value-based roots in his life that moored him to something that was more important than winning a video game. And that is that is a a result, a consequence of the direction that our institutions have gone, the direction that our culture has gone, whereby we don't really present children, the people you know, we don't really present the developing generation with much in the way of meaning and value. There is nothing that we present that's that, that we can point to and say, this is where you should put your faith. This is where you should put your confidence. This is where you should derive your sense of identity. This is where you should invest in your future and what you should take solace from and comfort from. You know, instead we say that, you know, basically your feelings, how you feel is of the utmost importance. You know, if your feelings say that you ought to go a certain way or that you ought to identify a certain way or that this is, this is true or that is false, then just go with your feelings. And this type of action is a direct result of that type of reasoning. 
What is, what is a more manifest, literal, physical manifestation of the mentality of do what you feel like? Your feelings are definitive. Your feelings should guide the way you go. What is a clearer example of that than somebody being upset about losing a video game and then picking up a gun and shooting people? It seems pretty clear cut to me. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I don't know if you went through firearm safety or not, but I'm not that much younger than you. Mm -hmm. And everybody in my class for high school went through firearm safety, whether their parents were Democrat or Republican. Everybody went to firearm safety. And we did it in high school. You know, I think maybe that's what's missing is that we're not teaching this anymore, that we don't teach that a gun is a tool. That well, you, it, it is what it is because of who uses it. And I think that's what's lacking. And then, like, the whole character of Todd in 4-H that I got, right. you know, I don't understand why that isn't tough anymore. Yeah. I appreciate the thoughts, Bear. appreciate the call. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Gun safety, I, I, is there value in that? Absolutely. Should Should kids be taught by their parents? under the supervision of their parents and, and authorized adults, how to use guns effectively and safely. Absolutely. But even, I don't think it's it's the the technical ability to use a gun that leads to these types of incidents. You know, what, what leads to these types of incidents is a lack of moral value, a lack of, of substantive meaning in your life, which is indicative of and emerges from a more broad lack of meaning and substance in our culture. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Liberty Hour on Twitter also points out, apparently there's a follow-up story coming out of this shooting that took place over the weekend in Florida at a video game competition that the shooting suspect had a history of mental illness. And Liberty Hour points out that another difference between 1955 and now is the way in which we dealt with that. You know, we used to have these things called asylums. Right? We used to have these things called institutions that we put people in when they demonstrated an inability to function successfully in civil society. And uh, we don't seem to take mental illness as seriously today. We like to pretend that it it's not as uh, threatening to the broader society as it can be when it's not properly controlled. And that's certainly a contributing factor as well. You know, I think uh, an, another aspect of this that we didn't have time to get into last hour, and I don't want to dive too deep into it now, is the whole debate over the the supposed influence that video games have upon violence. There was a, a study that was done that cited over at Gizmodo that basically the, the short version of it is there is no effect. Like it's negligible. That's the short version of it. Like there's nothing about playing video games that makes you more violent. And uh, I think that this is highlighted just in the simple fact that you consider there's what, you know, 325 million people in America out of that 325 million, 150 million people play video games, including 42% of adults. And yet, it's only an infinitesimal fraction 
of the populace that commits murder or engages in violence of any kind. So it's pretty obvious just from that fact alone that there is no causal relationship between video games or any form of entertainment and violence. You know, instead, what you typically see in these cases is if it's not mental health issues, then there's some sort of other pre-existent devaluation of life, you know, often fueled by abuse. And, and again, as we were talking about last hour, all of this takes place in a context where we have a culture that has less substantive meaning to it in terms of foundational shared, broadly shared values than it has ever had since its founding, in my opinion. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. I got a selection of stories here that cross the partisan divide. And the theme between all of them is that we're all collectivists now. And this is something that I bemoan you know, frequently here on the program, the fact that it seems increasingly like there is no mainstream or very little mainstream advocacy for libertarian values. And when I say libertarian, I'm talking small L, classical liberal, founding fathers, declaration of independence, bill of rights, constitutional values, the idea that the individual is what matters in American jurisprudence, that we all ought to be engaged or regarded as equal under the law, and treated as entities that should not be and shall not be sacrificed for the benefit of others. You know, this, this notion of a common good that, that somehow mystically is of greater importance than the individual good, that another, that's another way of saying we're going to sacrifice the virgin, we're going to throw the virgin into the volcano in order to make sure that the rains come for the harvest, you know, in order to make the, the crops grow. Uh, no. No, we're not going to do that because we are civilized, because we have Western values, because we believe in the founding principles of this country. And you know, we, we ought to be focused on those rather than embracing collectivist authoritarian ideals. And yet it seems like increasingly, whether you're talking about Democrats who have always been there, of course, that's kind of where they live. That's where the left lives is in this space of authoritarianism and collectivism. Increasingly, Republicans live there as well. And that, to my mind, is a big problem. Now we'll start. We'll start our criticism with Democrats because that's more fun. That gets us. That gets us all on the same page. And we'll look to Barons, who has an analysis of Elizabeth Warren. They write: Senator Elizabeth Warren has a problem with the way most U.S. companies are run. In her view, the primacy of shareholders over executives is a root cause of many of America's fundamental economic problems including underinvestment and income inequality. She has, therefore, introduced legislation to undermine the influence of investors. This is misguided. And they go on to explain. Now, under her plan, large U.S. companies would be required to create a material positive impact on society, whatever that means. Board members would be obligated to balance the punitiary interests of the shareholders with the best interests of persons that are materially affected by the conduct of the company, including but not limited to employees, suppliers, customers, each community which offices in which offices are located, and the local and global environment. So, in other words, 
Elizabeth Warren wants to take the power away from shareholders, which what are shareholders? Shareholders are the owners of the company. That's what it means to be a shareholder, right? So what she wants to do is she wants to take ownership away from owners and give it to people who are not owners. That is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea that is never going to have the effect that Elizabeth Warren would like to to posit or would like to sell us on it having. This this idea that we're somehow through the force of government, through the, the bludgeon of the state, we're going to create entities, we're going to create companies and corporations that somehow serve everybody better, completely ignores the only reason why anyone ever serves anybody else. Actually, look, let's be fair. There are two reasons. There are fundamentally two reasons why somebody would serve another human being. The first is because there's a mutual benefit, right? When you go to the gas station or you go to a restaurant or you engage in any sort of transaction in the market and the person you're dealing with, the guy behind the counter, thanks you for your business and you thank them for being available and being in business and selling you whatever it is they have to sell you, when you have that mutual exchange of gratitude, you're serving each other you're doing it out of self-interest because you're each walking away better off than you were before. That's one reason, one scenario in which you might serve another person. There's only one other scenario where you would serve them, and that's when you're under the whip, at the point of a gun, under force. These are the only two circumstances where a human being serves another human being because there's mutual benefit, one, or because they're being forced to, too. And so when you when you realize that that's the dichotomy, then there really is no moral justification to even entertain the idea that we're going to use government to try to affect some kind of good in the economy. Because go- the nature of government is that latter nature. It is force. And so what Elizabeth Warren wants to do here, first of all, by seizing people's property, because that's what you're doing. When you take control of a company away from shareholders, you're seizing their property, and you're going to give control to people who have no vested interest in it. They just don't. Like, what's the vested interest of somebody who doesn't own something? Nothing. That's what. I mean, it's... I could go on just on the the Elizabeth Warren story for, for the entire segment. I won't. I'll move on to another example here. From NPR News, the federal office in charge of protecting student borrowers from predatory lending practices has stepped down. In a scathing resignation letter, Seth Frothman, who until now was the student loan ombudsman or ombudsman at the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, says current leadership has turned its back on young people and their financial futures. The letter was addressed to, addressed to Mick Mulvaney, the bureau's acting director. In the letter obtained by NPR, Frontman accuses Mulvaney and the Trump administration of undermining the CFPB and its ability to protect student borrowers. Unfortunately, under your leadership, the Bureau has abandoned the very consumers it is tasked by Congress with protecting, it read. Instead, you have used the Bureau to serve the wishes of the most powerful financial companies in America. Now, I don't know what particulars this guy who was apparently in charge of uh, a student loan watchdog group within the federal government... I don't know the particulars of what he's complaining about, and I don't need to know the particulars of what he's complaining about. He's 
wrong. He's wrong. Not because of the particulars, but because of the premise that he's obviously operating under, which is that a federal bureaucracy ought to be in the business of protecting consumers from their own decisions. If, in fact, you know, taking what he has to say at face value for the sake of argument, if, in fact, this agency is is acting in such a way that it benefits financial companies, the only way it was ever able to do that or was in a position to be able to do that is because it was formed in the first place because it exists. The answer is not to put different people in charge of it. The answer is to get rid of it. Government should not be involved in the loan process, in student loans. You want to have you want to have consumer protection, you want to protect students, you want to you want to put students back in control of their financing and their finances and their educational process. Get the government out of it. Because what you'll find is very quickly, it's going to be really, really difficult to come up with financing for your, you know, European abstract feminist watercolor degree. Like it's not going to happen because a bank is going to take a look at the economic viability of your major and say, nope, we invested in that because we want to get our money back. And that, that's the, that's the way that you protect students. By putting them in a position where they're never going to find themselves in tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt on account of the fact that the government decided to give them a loan in order to go for school for go to school for something stupid that's not going to make them money. If you really are interested in the best interest of students and in limiting the ability of uh, financial institutions or educational institutions to take advantage of them, then let the market work. That would be the the fair and moral thing to do here. But, of course, that's not even part of the conversation. So those are your two examples, Elizabeth Warren and this guy from the student loan watchdog group in the federal government that indicate that we're all collectivists now. When we come back, we'll get into the Republican examples. At least one of them will be well familiar to longtime listeners of the program. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. That's the sense that I get perusing the news, prepping for the show tonight. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. We gave a couple of examples at the top of the hour of how the Democrats, of course, are just continuing where they, you know, it's where they naturally live is in a paradigm of collectivism there's no room for individual rights there's no room for what's best for individuals in fact elizabeth warren wants to take control of companies away from shareholders which is to say away from owners and give it to people who are not the owners and see how that works out it's going to be pretty terrible that's how it's going i'm just you know spoiler alert it's going to work out very very poorly to do that but you know not to be outdone republicans increasingly find themselves Jumping on the collectivist bandwagon, you know, and we talk about it frequently in when we talk about issues like immigration and the types of rhetoric that's used in order to facilitate what has become the the status quo. It's become the establishment Republican position on immigration, very collectivist rhetoric about, you know, our land and our property and our border uh, that that often at the expense of individuals who actually live there. Right. Like some people who actually live there and 
would would control the borders to their property differently than uh, those of us who live north of them would like to see it controlled. But that's not the only area, of course, in where you see this type of collectivist rhetoric. You also see it in economics, particularly when it comes in the Trump era to tariffs and the idea of protectionism. There's a piece out of the Foundation for Economic Education fee that tries to break down the basics of the difference between free trade or protectionism. And this is what they have to say. The policies and even more the tweets of the current president of the United States have made trade and trade policy a major subject of debate and furious argument with economists generally holding their heads in despair while the argument rages among the public and politicians. One feature of the present debate is the way apparently dry-as-dust arguments about trade and trade policy are leading to huge disagreements among people who were formerly political allies and are proving to be decisive in separating one side of politics from another. In that sense, we are returning to the 19th century, when one of the big divisions in U.S. politics was between Republicans, who at the time were protectionists, and Democrats, who at the time were free traders. Imagine that. How times change. This should not surprise us once we realize what is at stake. The difficulty, however, is the way questions of trade are commonly represented in contemporary economics. The economists of the last 70 years have made trade into a technical problem of economic efficiency. In reality, it is a profound question that forces us to confront essential questions about the way we view society and human relations. Another way to put this, what they're saying here, is that it's not a utilitarian consideration. What's right or wrong economically, you know, one of the standing rules we have here on the program is that economic value is human value. A price is not just a number. It's a communication of the intersection of values from different human beings who have actually expended their finite life in the pursuit of particular values. And in that sense, it is sacred. It is something that is not to be messed with. Because to do so, to introduce force into the equation, is to suppress or devalue the humanity that went into creating that product or service. Continuing here at Fee, the division between free trade and protection is actually one of the main aspects of the much deeper contrast and division between individualism and collectivism. The view anyone takes on this matter reveals something about their fundamental assumptions and beliefs in ways that few other questions do. Everyone who has studied economics is familiar with the principle of comparative advantage, first formulated by the British economist David Ricardo just over 200 years ago. The argument, as presented by Ricardo, is that it will be best for countries or parts of the world to specialize in some things and get the rest of the goods they require by trade with other countries that have specialized in other things. The basis of this is the insight that when resources, land, people, and capital are used to produce one thing, they cannot be used to produce something else. The value of the most valuable alternative use of those resources is the real cost of the thing that is produced. In Ricardo's example, Portugal is more efficient than England in producing both wine and cloth. That is, it takes less land, labor, and capital to produce either product in Portugal than it does in England. However, the cost of producing cloth in Portugal foregone production of wine is higher than in England. This means it makes sense for Portugal to specialize in wine and England in cloth. The result is not only that both are better off, but that the total production of both products is higher than if the two countries each had to try to produce both. So, you know, it, let, let's put it another way. Let's put it even simpler so that you can grasp this concept because it's an extraordinarily important 
meaningful foundational concept that that once you get it everything else flows from it and there should be no controversy in your mind as to what direction we ought to go in terms of economic policy here's a real simple example for you we've used this example before oranges why is it why is it that we don't have minnesota oranges right what why aren't we buying local when it comes to bananas why why are we discounting the value brought to the market of Minnesota banana farmers? Well, the answer is really obvious, right? We don't live in a climate where the growing of oranges or the growing of bananas makes a whole heck of a lot of sense and is going to be particularly productive, particularly cost efficient. And so if we limited ourselves, if we had a tariff on bananas and oranges from outside of Minnesota in order to protect the agricultural industry here, the result would be extraordinarily expensive bananas and oranges, or the alternative would be cheaper, crappier oranges and bananas. That's what we would get. We would not live in a world where we would have the highest value at the lowest cost. We would either have a higher cost or a lower value, both of which are bad outcomes, something that we should steer away from. And so you know, the point here being that when, when you can do something better elsewhere, when something can be produced at a higher value for a lower cost somewhere else, then it is proper and moral and good and right and only beneficial to trade for that higher value. And any effort to get in, to get in between that is inherently destructive, and it's justified through collectivist rhetoric. It's this idea that that we, we need to do something on behalf of a national industry. And what it does is it, 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 it inherently takes away from the value made by the individual, right? Because the fact that you have to introduce force into the equation, you know, we talked about this when we talked about the minimum wage. What the minimum wage does is it says that somebody who wants to work for less than whatever you set the minimum wage at can't because like the fact that you have to make a law presumes that there are in fact people who want to work for less than that minimum wage if there were people out there who wanted to work for less you wouldn't need the law it would be it would be silly it would be stupid you wouldn't need to have a law forcing people to pay a certain amount of money if there weren't people out there who were willing to who weren't willing to work for that amount of money and it's the same thing with any other type of economic intervention. When you say you you can't import, you know, whatever cars from Mexico. Let's use that example. You can't import cars from Mexico, or you can't import steel from China without fifteen or twenty five percent tariff or whatever we're going to tack on it. What you're saying is that the individual who wants that value cannot obtain that value, and your and the, your rationale for doing so is well, we're doing it for you know this industry or that industry or for America generally. And so what you're saying is we have to sacrifice you individual. We have to sacrifice your values. We have to sacrifice your interest. You don't get to do what you want to do as an individual American consumer for the benefit of some other guy over here. That's the essence of collectivism. And the fact that the Republican party has latched onto this in the past couple of years and has made it, you know, there's another article here from Vice News. This is the headline. A slim major majority of Republicans now want single-payer, too. 
There's a new poll out that says 51.9% of Republicans would embrace Medicare for all. This doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. You're talking about the same party that couldn't repeal Obamacare, that never even came up with a decent replacement plan for Obamacare. They didn't even have it in the wings. They didn't even put a whole lot of thought into it. Why? Because we've lost track. We don't, we're not moored. We're not tied down to this idea of individualism anymore. It's not even a part of our repertoire. We pay it passing rhetorical homage, but we don't integrate it into our actual policies or our actual thoughts or our campaigns. We're not, we're not talking about how the individual lies at the heart of the law, which if, if we're not going to do it, nobody is. And if nobody is, we're in a lot of trouble. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855, the number to contribute. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Some new developments in the continuing fallout of Michael Cohen's guilty pleas that he filed in which he implicated although he did not explicitly name and nonetheless implicated President Donald Trump as being part of an effort to commit campaign finance violations. And there have been some other developments over the weekend that uh, increased the legal danger that the president finds himself in. Now, you know, I've been making, as we've been discussing this since the Cohen stuff broke last Tuesday, I I believe it was, that there are really three different avenues or three different channels of analysis that one needs to engage in when considering this Michael Cohen stuff and these investigations generally. One is the legal consequences, the legal analysis. The other is the politics of it. What does this mean politically? And the final thing, and perhaps most important, is the moral question of what's what's the underlying morality to these developments. And in terms of, you know, turning point, in terms of newsworthiness, the legal consideration is really where it's at because as these things drop, particularly the details we're about to get into here, the the legal predicament that the president finds himself in grows more and more hazardous. You know, the politics of it, I think, remains relatively stable. You know, people pretty much know how they feel about Donald Trump, and there isn't a whole lot like the the degree of what would have to happen to move people significantly on Donald Trump is probably unimaginable at this point. But legally, he nonetheless finds himself in increased hazard as a result of the things that are taking place. First story comes from Reuters. The chief executive of the publisher of the National Enquirer was granted immunity by prosecutors investigating payments arranged by U.S. President Donald Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, to silence two women who said they had sex with Trump, the Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday. Another AMI executive, Dylan Howard, also received immunity, Vanity Fair magazine reported. American Media Inc.'s Chief Executive Officer David 
uh, Pecker met with prosecutors to describe Trump and Cohen's involvement in hush money deals with adult film star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal ahead of the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the Wall Street Journal reported, citing sources. Pecker is a longtime friend of Trump and Cohen. So you've got other folks who are receiving immunity deals as the investigations continues. Go to the Washington Post. Tom Wolf said that a liberal is a conservative who's been arrested. That's cynical, but manifestly true. From Watergate to Iran-Contra, from the Plame, uh, our, uh, Plame affair to the trial of Scooter Liberty, to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, prosecutors of prominent conservatives have always turned staunch law and order types into abrupt but vigorous critics of the criminal justice system, at least temporarily. The most recent convert to the criminal defense cause is no less than the President of the United States, Donald Trump. In a Fox News interview that aired Thursday, Trump, smarting from the betrayal of former fixer Michael Cohen, decried flipping prosecutors' familiar tactic of inducing lower-level targets to implicate higher-ups in exchange for a reduced sentence. The president probably had yet uh, to, to hear from longtime friend David Packer, publisher of the National Enquirer, we just read about him, also testifying about hush money payoffs in exchange for immunity. By Friday, so had Ellen Weiselberg, the Trump Organization's longtime CFO. Trump fumed that he's been watching flipping for 30 or 40 years, that defendants who cooperate with the government make up stories, that prosecutors can use charges like bank fraud to make defendants say bad things about people like him, that it's not fair, and that it almost ought to be illegal. And then they go on to describe how this is a bigger problem. You know, it's not so much a it is a problem for Trump, no doubt. But this this flipping thing that Trump is so upset about has been a much bigger problem for people with fewer means, from people in the in the shadows of society who can't afford def, uh, high priced lawyers to defend them, and who are often pressured by overzealous prosecutors to plead guilty to charges for which they may actually be innocent in order to avoid the ordeal of being tried and potentially being jailed through the process for months, if not years. And, you know, basically having their lives ruined even before they come close to being convicted. And so this is a, a significant problem in our jurisprudence that something ought to be done about. Uh, and and no, no, nonetheless, for the immediate consideration, the president finds himself in a position where he's being flipped on by quite a few people right now. In addition to that, from the Star Tribune, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is considering pursuing criminal charges against the Trump Organization and two senior company officials in connection with Michael Cohen's hush money payment to an adult film actress, according to two officials with knowledge of the matter. A state investigation would center on how the company accounted for its reimbursement to Cohen for the $130,000 he paid to the actress, Stephanie Clifford, who has said she had an affair with President Donald Trump, the officials said. Both officials stress that the office's review of the matter is in its earliest stages and prosecutors have not yet made a decision on whether to proceed. State charges against the company or its executives could be significant because Trump has talked about pardoning some of his current or former aides who have faced federal charges. As president, he has no power to pardon people or corporate entities convicted of state crimes and that is significant and again this goes to one of the things we were pointing out in the aftermath of the michael cohen thing last week which is that you know one of the major legal turning points here is that the genie is now out of the proverbial bottle in the sense that this is no longer 
just Robert Mueller. This is no longer just a special counsel. It's no longer something that Trump can shut down by firing somebody. This is now out of his hands. It's out of the executive hands. It's in the federal courts. And it's also potentially here going to be under the purview of state officials who Trump has significantly less capacity to protect himself from. So again, recognizing that we have these three different avenues, these three different channels of analysis, one being legal, the other being political, and the final one being moral. Legally, it seems like each day that passes, Trump finds himself in a stickier spot than he did the day before. Where it's all leading to ultimately, who knows? We'll see. Anything could potentially happen. Politically, it's very clear that much hinges on the midterm election. Much hinges on the capacity. You know, there's another story that we have here out of Politico that talks about what they call a sleeper case that could torpedo Mueller's report. The 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 crux of it is that depending on how a judge comes down on an unrelated case that has to do with how the Department of Justice handles information coming out of grand juries, a a ruling could go down in such a way that it has implications for the Mueller investigation, whereby they can't release the information publicly that they would like to release in order to discredit Donald Trump. But that only happens in the event that Republicans stay in control of Congress. So if we get to November and Democrats take control of Congress, then all bets are off because any information that the Mueller investigation gets hold of can be subpoenaed by Congress and made public through that route. And so politically, much hinges upon what takes place in these next couple of months. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Some of these memes that people have come up with razzing John McCain after his passing over the weekend. Oof. Darker side of the internet. I mean, like, darkly funny? I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not giggling a little bit, but, man, I wouldn't post him. I'll just put it that way. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855 is our number. There's a couple of listener emails we got last week that I wanted to get to. I kind of been kicking the can down the road, as it were. I thought I'd finally tackle them tonight. One comes from Cheryl in Plymouth. And by the way, you can send me an email at walterhudson at iheartmedia.com. And I do check that from time to time. And uh, it's a nice way to to get your question or comment on the program in a, in a way that I can, I can craft, because it's email, I could take some time thinking about it and craft a, a more thoughtful response. Cheryl writes, where can I read more about the theory referred to on the show about Social Security being a type of robbery from younger workers? And if older retirees are as moral as they believe they are, why would they wish to continue this crime? I'm about 10 to 12 years from Social Security and honestly had never thought about it that way. Instead, I'm just concerned that since I have paid into this insurance program, like everyone else, then yes, I do want to reap my benefit. It was just another, or it was just from another planet to hear this theory. And uh, so if, in response to Cheryl, now I could provide you know any number of 
resources to try to back up this this idea of Social Security basically as theft, as a Ponzi scheme. The one that I selected was from CNBC. This is from back in July 2007. And it's a commentary by a Jake Novak where the, the headline he picked was, Social Security is fueling income inequality. Let's end it. He writes, what if there was a financial scheme that took the money of younger working people and gave it to older, richer people year after year? What if that scheme relied heavily on a misconception that the money collected was being set aside for the contributor to get back at a later time? And what if, despite the fact that the law required every wage earner and employer to pay into this scheme, it was still running out of funds and spiraling toward disaster? Actually, there's no need for what ifs because that scenario is actually happening and has been happening for more than 80 years. It's called Social Security, and it's way past time to end this scam if we want to keep the American dream alive. The latest evidence came this week when the Social Security trustees released their annual report to the public. The report projects that the so-called Social Security Trust Fund will be tapped out by 2034, and at that point, Social Security beneficiaries would have to start taking 77 cents on the dollar for their promised benefits. In other words, if you're a wage-earning worker 48 years old or younger which would include me and which would certainly include Brad, say goodbye forever to a good part of that paycheck withholding money. It's not like any of this should come as a shock to most of the people who will be affected. Gallup's poll of Americans age 49 and younger have consistently shown that the majority of those Americans do not believe they will get Social Security benefits when they reach retirement age. And that's because we can do this thing called math. It's because we can add. And it's also because we have the, the capacity to recognize you know, on cursory examination, a Ponzi scheme when we see it. Now, look, I understand this notion, and I don't think anybody's really advocating for in any serious fashion, just we're going to end Social Security tomorrow, right? Like you just, you're going to, you're 10 years away, you're five years away from getting your Social Security check, and you're just, you're not going to get it. I haven't heard anybody propose that who's in any position to to seriously try to move forward with it. What I have heard proposed quite reasonably, is we need to rethink how we're doing this thing moving into the future. We need to figure out how we can taper people off of the dependence upon the expectation that they will have these Social Security checks funded to the degree that they currently are in the future. And there are a variety of ways you can go about trying to do that, but the point is something has to be done. This is one area where the something simply must be done argument actually has merit. Something simply must be done about Social Security. Uh, well, they should, if they think that it's going to be insolvent by 2034, they should just have an opt-out program. Like, right. hey, if you're not retiring before 2034, here's your chance to opt-out. Which, and the the what the author speaks to here is the rhetoric around Social Security and how that facilitates misconceptions about what's actually happening. And that's my big problem with it, is that people sincerely believe that they're paying an insurance premiums in order to get a benefit that they claim in the same way you would put in a claim on your private insurance. And that is simply not the case. The money that gets taken out of my paycheck and Brad's paychecks and your paychecks today is immediately redistributed to current beneficiaries today. And, and past that point, like the day it's taken out of your check, 
the money no longer exists. It's not sitting in some fund for you somewhere collecting interest that you're going to collect on at some point. It is gone. And the only way that you are ever going to see a beneficiary check is if a future worker is taxed in order to redistribute that money to you. And so when you realize that that's how it works, the way all Ponzi schemes work, the way all you know pyramid schemes work, Somebody has to, somebody has to be left without a seat when the music stops. That's the bottom line. To some degree, somebody is going to have to get less than they put into it. Somebody's going to have to. And so the, the, the argument, the really the only point of contention is who's that going to be? Cause it is going to happen. All right. That's the, the one thing we can guarantee, like the author points out here, if nothing happens and we hit 2034, which is which hopefully is a place that I'm going to see in my lifetime, certainly most likely a place that Brad's going to see in his lifetime. If we do nothing, we hit 2034, those people moving forward will see a decrease in their benefits. So the question is, how are we going to meter it out? How are we going to share the load of, of not being able to get what we thought we were going to be able to get? And the, the answer to that ought to be the most, the most responsible, the most humane, I guess, way possible to be able to transition from this immoral scheme that would be illegal if it was being done privately, transfer away from that system to one that is based upon the market and upon actual ownership of an actual account that's yours, that's attached to your name, that you actually have control over. That's what we ought to be talking about. And yet there's no moral courage for this right now amongst republicans it's not being talked about you know paul ryan who was who was arguably the chief intellectual uh force on this front is leaving congress <laughs> having accomplished precisely nothing on this front and there's no appetite for it because we're much more interested in talking about tariffs and you know building walls and what have you well and what is it like three quarters of americans aren't prepared for retirement because yeah. they think that social security will provide them some sort of so, some sort of benefit and they're wrong and they're absolutely wrong and that's problematic another email here from listener clarence in st paul asked biggest gross national product of mexico mexicans living abroad and western union money back to mexico why then would the president of mexico stop the biggest money maker for his country it's a great question, and I'll respond to it by saying this. If, in fact, the money sent back to Mexico from people who have immigrated elsewhere is the biggest source of the national uh, gross national product there, that is an indication. First of all, that's the direction that we're going to the extent that we continue to intervene in the economy and place the value of the collective above that of the individual. So the solution, as always, is freedom. It's